This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Well, we're going stateside this week and talking to Erwin Benedict Valencia, or simply E. I've known Erwin since 2016 when we met in New York City in his role working in basketball, and we've been good friends ever since. I would regard him as a polymath, hugely competent in many different and diverse domains. At the last count, he had over 30 letters after his name, but that really is just a byproduct of who he is. He grew up in the Philippines, but moved around a fair bit as a kid before getting his first break working in professional sport with the Pittsburgh Pirates in Major League Baseball. From there, he went into professional basketball, where he remains today, as well as being widely sought for his views and skills and where the athletes he works with benefit hugely from his continuous learning, his curiosity and his positivity. During this chat, we touch on resilience, recovery, mindfulness over training, meditation, breathing and even manifestation. You'll hear that Erwin is a force of nature and he explained to me that one of his early interests was in positive psychology. I've always loved positive psychology and one of my things is always, I always want to learn from the source. And I know this resonates with you completely too. For, in order for me to get better at the bicycle-social approach of physiotherapy, which is really combining this almost coaching to then treatment situation, I wanted to learn from the best, the godfather of that the person that really created this for the chronic injury situation in sport. And that was Peter O'Sullivan all the way out in Perth, Australia. And I said, the only way I can really be better at how this is done is by spending time with him. So I got my butt on a flight all the way to Perth, Australia, hopped on this little Jetstar plane from Sydney to Perth, which was uncomfortable for five hours, <laughs> and then got there and spent a week there. Even though I didn't get a lot of time with him every day because of confidentiality, it made me learn how he did things. And I just watching and being an observer. And you know, there were times that I'd have to wake up at five in the morning because there was a, a stretching guru named Aaron Mattis who was in Sarasota, Florida that happened to be working only half an hour from where I was working as a baseball uh, athletic trainer, a young baseball athletic trainer. And I called him up and I said, hey, look, I'm a new athletic trainer with the Pirates here in Florida. I was wondering if I could learn from you because I know you're like, you know, you created the best stretching program in the planet. And I was wondering if I could go. And he goes, well, if you're willing to wake up and be here by 5 a.m., I'd be happy to have you. So I think for me, it's so important for me to learn from you know the source. And so when positive psychology really came into my life, because I've always been in personal growth and professional development, and a lot of it had to do with the spirituality space. But as you and I both know, in order to really impact and create the change we want as it relates to the corporations, as it relates to bigger organizations of athletics, you have to have the science to back it up yeah, and the data to back it up. And so as I've constantly been on a search for what, how I can bring all this thought process of emotion and spirituality into those areas, I found myself getting into the program at the University of Pennsylvania that started positive psychology. You know, uh, Martin Seligman was the godfather of positive psychology. And it was, a, it was the newest branch of psychology that started really 20, 30 years ago. So I was so fascinated by the ability to be able to have the science to back everything that I personally am and how I live. Because everyone was like, how are you so happy all the time? What, <laughs> what's your secret sauce? And I was like, well, because I grew up like this, because my culture is like it. But then can you explain that? And then not until I started the program at Penn 
it allowed me to understand who I am from a scientific manner. Yeah, that's fascinating. At the very start of, of that, you mentioned the Pirates. And we're talking about the, the, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are a Major League Baseball team. And, and I guess that was your first break into professional sport. You were with the minor league team to start with. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of had a year with those guys traveling around in the minor leagues. And now, you know, we're, we're talking, you're, you're five minutes away, I guess, from the New York Knicks training base. And you've been with the Knicks since, what, 2014? 2014, yeah. So you've had different roles there, moved up the system, and your official role now is head of wellness? Uh, my official title really is team physiotherapist, team physical therapist, but I also do the lead as it relates to the wellness side of things. So I'm the liaison to our peak performance specialist who really does a lot. He's, he's a you know, amazing Dr. Sweet, who is a team psychiatrist, and but also a counselor. And so he really, in a sense, is a lead on that as it relates to sleep and mental health and mental performance. And I bring it from this higher aspect to more of the ground level of what are the small things we can do here with the athletes that I serve uh, on a daily basis from the little things, whether that's making sure everyone has blue light blocking glasses to essential oils to just reminding them to take their cherry juice so they can sleep earlier. and sharing meditation and mindfulness tips uh, on the daily and by being in it but by simply being it allows them to see of how i live and then hopefully inspires them to live better too and is your position then quite a unique one or would you say some of the other teams are also kind of have moved in that direction as well uh it's a pretty unique situation we because of the fact it's not an official title it's not something that is really commonplace in the league right now but i think there's always going to be this one person that's a bit of a, a rebel, I guess, in each team that is more open to things. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the essential oils, meditation, mindfulness space, but also could be maybe from a technique of exercise program that's a little bit different. So pushing the boundaries forward and stuff. So from my personal standpoint and what I personally do, yes, it's very unique. But as it relates to the innovators that are around the league, there are many. And I think the NBA as a league in general is one of the most innovative in the world because we like to push the boundaries and I'm you know and we see that from the fact that they put value in mental health and created a mental health council one of the first ones I think in any of the major sports here but also took consideration the fact that they wanted to hear from the athletes and because it is a player run sport or player run league if there's any challenges that most of the athletes would have there are community managers that are part of each team that are almost like community development or personal development or community development where it's not their job their, their task is not only to talk about the charity events and have them show up at places but rather also see how their personal lives are doing outside the court and not to meddle in it or anything it's like for example just like hey i you know one of the players needs a chef you know, who is the best chef for this person and not just anybody, but, but we can vet and say, okay, this would be a good one or B, what are the activities or places around the new home that they just purchased, so to speak, that will be good for their families so that then it takes off the stress of the athlete himself to worry about this, but then there's somebody that's taking care of it in the back end. I think what is different as well in this sport compared to many other sports is that a lot of our guys have their own people, whether it's their massage therapist, whether it's their 
uh, mental health or mental performance person, whether it's you know a trainer, a workout person they work with, a lot of the athletes, because there are a smaller population of athletes, have their own teams behind them. And I think that was definitely popularized by basketball players. I think there are some football players that have that as well, American football players. And baseball, yes, but baseball is a sport and hockey are sports that are very team oriented and less individual. So there's less of that. Most of it is like groups win those teams. But in basketball, a lot of them have their own teams that back them up. And uh, like I said, in in football, it's few and far in between. Obviously, you have the Russell Wilsons and the Tom Brady's that have their own crew behind them. But that's more a rarity than a norm. While in the NBA, that's a norm. When I look at your schedule, compare it to, you know, soccer over here or, or rugby and there's 30 to 40 fixtures maybe in rugby season. You guys, what, what's your regular season? Is it 80 plus games? 82, 82 games. Yeah. So recovery is kind of short. It's like you've got, what, three or four games a week? Yep. I suppose at that point then it's just there's less time to recover, to be at your best. What would be the biggest issue that you would have with that amount of games and that amount of time that you're playing? You would think that the physical aspect would be the most challenging, but really it's the mental aspect. It's the same thing every day. It's Groundhog Day. And guys will show up and be like, oh, we're playing again. And then, oh, they'll sleep and they wake up. Oh, we're playing again. Oh, we'll sleep. And then, oh, we're playing again. It never ends. It literally is a constant hamster wheel that doesn't stop until you reach September and you're like, are we going to make the playoffs or not? And then it becomes a little different because now you're playing the team more often and you're seeing them a lot. So you can adjust because you see them that often. But having this throughout the season is definitely very challenging mentally because not only do you have to go through this hamster wheel, you're also missing the people that you love. And if you have a family, it's challenging for you to see them because sometimes we could be on the road for like 20 days in a row. So it's mentally grueling because it's an everyday because even though you feel hurt, you feel sad, you feel whatever because of the loss or physically because of pain that you're feeling, guess what? You're back at it again tomorrow. One of the things that I notice quite a lot in the in the consultancy that I do around a lot of the Olympic sports is there is a increasing awareness around overwork and load. So load, I, I mean, I'd love to know what your definition of, but to the people listening, it's really just how much how much work you're putting in that, and that mix between training loads and playing loads. Have you seen that as well, that there's there's more awareness now that, that you perhaps you don't need to train as hard or as much as previously thought? Yes, that's an amazing question. Uh, what kind of we've seen and what the science has now shown is that as you want to almost do most of the work in the preseason, the changes that you have to create with your body, the toughness that you have to make sure that your mind is ready for has to be done in the preseason because when the in-season programs start, it's about cruising. You don't need to start continue lifting heavy weights. You don't need to try to exhaust yourself running and stuff because the expectation is you've already done that prior to so that you're prepared for the battle itself, you know, while you prepare for it. And what we're definitely looking at is the observation because of the data that's now been collected in the past really 10 years has shown that, you know, you don't have to force the hardships on a daily basis, but rather listen and save your energy really for the games. And most of the data has shown that obviously fatigue, when there's a lot more fatigue, then you have higher susceptibility injury. And what it'll, all the body will do is find the weakest link. And even though you trained your butt off in the preseason, 
once you get to the level of fatigue, instead of you being able to catch yourself, let's say, for example, you go up for a layup, you land on that one foot. When you're playing from a full cup, mind, body, and spirit, you can land on that foot pretty well because you'll be aware that you're going to be landing on it. But when you're absolutely fatigued and you go up and you land and there's going to be a period of time that say, hey, can I hold myself back on that one foot or do I give into it? Mm. Because now you're questioning yourself because of the fatigue that you're getting both mentally and physically. And that's the difference I think now that we're seeing is that from a standpoint of respecting what that fatigue is like and in a sense saving it for the games. So at the beginning in preseason, if you've got some tests, I don't know, what sort of tests would you do? Vertical jump stuff, some power tests? Um... Yeah, there's a whole bunch of tests that we do. Anything that goes in every multiple directions that check cardio, heart rate variability, and everything else. I mean, it's a total barrage, <laughs> total barrage. And would you then, when you get those results in preseason, you don't really expect nor really want, and the head coaches would feel aligned at this, on them to suddenly improve on all their scores. It's all about maintenance and wellness and keeping them fit for the games. Well, there's a certain standard that they need to get to, whether, you know, what are the levels that are not only acceptable but also what are the levels that are above acceptable and how can we keep this gold standard? And so if you need to push the athlete in that back end of camp, so to speak, in order for them to reach those goals, then you want them to reach those goals because you want them to know to know that they can get there so that by the season start, they're not doubting themselves because they're able to get to now the part where they've reached the standard. Mm. The question that's asked is, why is that increase of run rep max important to you? And it begins with that. What is that going to prove? Well, getting that one rep max in the middle of the season, have you a better chance of scoring? Will that one rep max have you show or prove the fact that you have a better chance of being able to outrun your competition? If it doesn't have a purpose, then why are you doing it? We kind of have a saying, the best athlete is an available athlete. And if the athlete is not available because he's trying to push the envelope as a result to his physical stress and he's not available, then he's no use to the team. So I think that's something that should be considered from the beginning on. And these are the discussions that are had prior to even camp coming about, prior to even the athletes arriving into the city is saying, okay, what, who are we and what is our identity as a staff? And how can we all do this? Our goal is in the end to win a championship. So what, what are the best courses that we can do in order for us to get one step closer to what that goal is? You know, we haven't talked too much yet about meditation and, and mindfulness, and I know how important it is to you. And I'd love to know what that first step into it was, and how do you embed that in a professional team to show them that it actually makes a difference? Let's start from the beginning. My meditation journey, my mindfulness and meditation journey, started at the age of seven wow. through martial arts. I was very lucky to have a father that was a big martial artist. He I would always remember, and I still to this day have it burned in my memory, the image of my father in a brown belt at his dojo in Japan while he was going to business school there. And, you know, and, and I looked at that and I always asked my dad, why did you ever get a black belt? And he goes, well, I had to really leave school or I was graduated from my business school and, and I couldn't continue because then I would have to live in Japan and your mother and I wanted to have you in America in a sense. And so I had to go to America for a, on the job training post you know, postgraduate job training at a Japanese company in New York City, and I couldn't continue my karate practice. So unfortunately, I was not able to complete my black belt before I left. And hence the reason why that photo 
is what it is because I'm a brown belt. So I was always inspired not only to be uh, a martial artist like my father was, but to beat him and be actually be a black belt. <laughs> so that was actually one of my ultimate goals at a young age. And so it started with dabbling into karate, dabbling into judo, I think different kinds of martial arts until I found Taekwondo, which ironically was not Japanese like the karate that my dad took, but rather Korean and had more legs to it. And every time you start with Taekwondo, you start with silence, you start with meditation, you start with stillness and you just find quiet. And, I, and at that age, you're like, am I supposed to be thinking about things? Am I supposed to just zone things out? Am I supposed to be looking at something white? Because they would be like, okay, close your eyes. That's all you would get. It's like, close your eyes and focus. And you're like, close your eyes. And you're like, what am I closing my eyes for? But then that innate struggle inside me helped me just form the lessons I needed to learn for myself. And at such a young age, you're just like, am I supposed to be there? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I don't know what to do. Like, okay, I think I'm just going to like chill here and figure this out. And when I was 12 years old, I got my black belt. I, I started martial arts about seven, eight, and I and I I was very adamant about continuing it to get the black belt. Probably when I was nine years old, so it took me about three years until I finally got my black belt at the age of twelve. And the moment I got my black belt, my sensei was like, "Oh my, okay, you're now you're officially a black belt. Now you can start teaching the class on your own." And so, okay, cool. So next Saturday, you can start the class. And the class was like at 10 o'clock to 12. And uh, that day I showed up at like 9.45, 9.30. I was ready. I was a 12-year-old kid. And I had <laughs> students that were like 18. Some were four or five years old. Some were 18. They're saying, this kid is going to teach us. But then I've already been there for a while. So I was his protege. And then my sensei didn't show up till about 11 o'clock until it was like sparring time. So I had to learn how to teach a class by watching him, by subbing sometimes, and then really doing all my own. Like I was creating my own event. Like I was an event production company <laughs> teaching a class and I was 12, but it began with meditation. And for me, from the struggles I had learning how to meditate, it was just that. I was like, okay, now I want you guys to like find your quiet and just focus on that. And literally it was like as simple as that. I didn't really walk them through. It wasn't a guided meditation. It wasn't like channel your inner, <laughs> being and here's some incense as I douse it all over you. No, no. It was just stay still, don't move, especially the smaller kids, just focus. What for you then, where did that was that where you got your first kind of moment where you saw the the value in it and you wanted to continue to use it, learn a bit more about it and then spread the news about it? For me really when I was given practical tools of how to use it, that's when it became real for me. At the age of 14, I was sitting down in my breakfast uh, table with my family. And I, I saw this newspaper article in the Manila Bulletin, which is the, the biggest newspaper in the Philippines. It was an eighth sliver on, in this newspaper. It says, get better grades, increase your brain power. And I was like, oh, the Silva method. And I was like, oh, cool, I need to try that. I mean, I was already an A student to begin with, but then how can I make, how can I be better? Because I had my classmates that were way smarter than me way more intelligent you know i was more practical but they were way more intelligent and so what we did is then 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 i, I wanted to go to this course i called up and i says hey is this happening this weekend and it's like yes well i don't have the money when are you guys doing this again they'll probably do it next year and i asked my parents can you front me the money and they're like no you have to earn it and so i had to wait the year until a year later to get back and apply for this program because it took me christmas time 
to do my little song and dance with my hat, put it down so that every reunion me and my family had, I put my hat down and I started dancing and singing for them because I wanted to make enough money to be able to pay for at this time, you know, that course was probably like $50, $60. It really wasn't that much, but for a 12, 13 year old, you know, that, that was, that was heaps. So, you know, my mom would only give me like maybe, you know, 20, here's 20, you have to figure out how to do, get the rest. And so I had to hustle. And if entertainment was my hustle, I had to entertain. So, and I had to entertain and then go straight to my grandparents and be like, Hey, so did you like my show? I want more than that, that dollar bill. I want, I want five, you know, you know, whatever. So, uh, so that's the way I kind of go, went about it. And then, and, and when I finally got to the silver method, my mom's like, is that a cult? Are you joining a cult? I was like, no mom, it's going to get me. It, it's just, it's just to make me train my brain so I can get better grades. Ah, well, if it gets you better grades as every Asian mom and Asian dad would be like, okay, oh, you were okay with, it. we'll just drop you off. So they dropped me off at intercontinental hotel in Makati in Manila and, and that's where kind of I went to class. I did it on the weekends. I think I did two, three weekends there or, or maybe, you know, or two, three or four weekends. I don't remember how long we went there, but it was a bunch of kids. We were all young and, you know, I learned how to mind map. I learned how to visualize and when visualizing meant. And then, and then I had to like, I learned how to find ways to get into this meditative state like quickly. So then I can snap my fingers and be able to get there immediately because I already created this vision of how to get there, this roadmap for myself. I learned ways to kind of harness this power when you're in an awkward position, like st standing on stage and needing a speech, but putting your three fingers together because you've already done the work to get you to this flow state this quickly. And I was learning this at the age of 14. And so that helped me because it gave me practical tools. It's not just about sitting there and being still, but how then do you apply it? And that's what really was the biggest gift. And then at the age of 16, one of my dear, dear friends in high school, gave me this book that was just released. And that book was called The Celestine Prophecy. And The Celestine Prophecy made me see the spiritual side of life through the lens of an adventure. And I've always been an adventurer, a traveler at such, at such a young age. So to be able to read a book that brings you through the Amazon rainforest and, and then searching for these insights, which are taken from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Scrolls that the church is trying to stop from everyone learning. It, it's obviously fictional, but the lessons behind it, and the most important lesson I learned there is that coincidences occur for a reason. So stop and listen to them and take a moment to listen to that message. And I think a lot of my life and the magic of manifestation has occurred in my life because I've listened to the coincidences that occur and people who I bump into I take a moment to see what value they have in my life and what value I have in theirs. And like I said, I think where it's now led to, it's allowed me to listen more, to be a better clinician, to then also listen to be a better human being, not just to my athletes, but my friends and saying, okay, if me talking about meditation freaks you out, how can we put it in words so that then you'll be able to say, hey, I'm going in with you. And what I've learned by understanding and listening to my athletes is that if you put it in a semantic or a word that makes them feel more empowered, like breathing, then you'll have more buy-in. If you find a, a medium that allows them to see you more and be able to do it on their own so that nobody sees them, then you apply that. If we're all, in the, we're all trying to do meditation in our room, in our, like our big meeting rooms, and everyone feels awkward about it, they're not really into that yet because they don't know what it's like. So connect with an app company like Headspace. Um, and I called Andy Padagon, who started Headspace, and say, how can we 
how can we use this so that our athletes in sport can be able to have a source, a resource outside of the realm we're in. And that allowed for some of the athletes to say, hey, this is what meditation is. I want to do it on my own and not be judged by my other teammates first. And so that has been a blessing, not just from that aspect, using technology, but also using the breath as a tool to get into meditation. One thread that I have throughout your career has been this curiosity. You, mm. you seem to be actively curious to find a not always the better way to do things, but also a different way that, that there isn't always one way. Where do you think you got that from? You know what? I don't know, but it is inherently, it's my number one character strength. My appreciation, appreciation of beauty and excellence mm. through, you know, the scientific questionnaires that I put myself in is my number one character trait is that I find beauty in everything and I find excellence in everything. So then I ask myself, how can I be beautiful and how can I be excellent? And so that pushes me forward and that, curio that is the curiosity that I have. And I think that comes from number one, being the eldest child in my family, but also being the older brother is saying, how can I make it better and go through it so that then my siblings or the people I take care of will have an easier path to get there. That's the servant leader in you. Yeah. And, and that's always been something that I guess you put at the forefront of everything you do. Like every, I think mm -hmm. I read somewhere you, you did a, a few years ago with Jay Shetty on the Huffington Post on the, I think it was Rise. You talked about, you know, everything you do is with purpose. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you then try to share and encourage other people to think more about that, making sure that every moment counts and that what you do, you know, you should do things with real purpose and clarity? Yeah, in intentionality. It's about being mindful about the choices that you make or that have consequences, both good and bad. And so being aware of those before making those choices allows you to take a pause for a moment and say, what will this choice change for me? And what good will come out of it? And do I want that good out of it? Or do I want something else out of it? And so I think as I've gotten older as well, and I've been exposed to more people who are utterly amazing like yourself, I always never miss a chance to learn because each person has a lesson to teach you, just like the Celestine prophecy talked about at the beginning with the IRED when I was 16, which then brought me on this journey where every time I do something, even when I travel, I don't just travel and sit down on the beach and lay down there and try to get burnt. If I'm going to the beach, I'm going to jump in the ocean because why? It refreshes my soul and I need to taste this salt water in my lips and feel it in my my body because I'm an Islander, I'm a Filipino and, and we need the sense of the beach to, to, to get sticky because that's, that's who I am in my DNA. And so I have to do that. If I go into a networking event, I'll go in there, so to speak and say, okay, who are the people here and which stories do I want to listen to that A, isn't wasting my time and, and, and I'm not wasting theirs. Because as, as you and I both know, we can go to these conferences and you don't really find resonance with some people. And like, you ask yourself, what are you doing here? And that gut feeling inside of you says like, just, just go already. Because there's really nothing that's making you stay there unless as you're about to leave, somebody stops you. And that becomes the one person that actually makes the whole conference for you. So, but it's about being, listening to that, listening to yourself so that you can take care of yourself, but also listening to the messages that are around you, which then allows you to be more purposeful with everything that you do. And you talked also a little bit earlier about um, manifestation and 
how important that is. Could you just maybe describe that a little bit more to the listeners on what you you see manifestation and how they can use it in a positive manner? Mm. Manifestation is the, the third ingredient of my three steps to success in life. I was asked right when I got uh, the job in the NBA by a Filipino reporter that flew from the Philippines uh, and asked me, what's a message you can have to the kids back home? And, and it just literally came out of my mouth without even me thinking about it. And I, and I said, visualize it, prepare for the path, and then manifest it. And, and I'll break that down because I would say initially, visualize it, be, have utmost clarity with what you want, be purposeful, be intentional. By doing that, it allows you to set yourself up to know that you've cleared everything out and you have one goal to attain. And by allowing that goal to be seen and heard, it, you are able to throw it out to the universe and say, okay, I know what I want. And I know it from my inner being that that's what I want, because not only will it make me happy, because there's a purpose for it. And for me, it was to inspire millions of Filipinos back home. Second, prepare for the path. In order for you to, to have fulfilled that dream is not only visualizing and having the absolute clarity, but also doing the work, buying that lottery ticket, instead of just hoping that the ticket arrives and you win a million dollars, so to speak, actually buying the ticket, putting the work in, putting yourself in situations where you're challenged, putting yourself where you're uncomfortable, learning from the ground up. You know, for me, it was learning how to make Gatorade in these gigantic vats so that you bring it out at five in the morning out to the field before the sun even comes out so that it's set up before the players arrive. It's about, you know, staying in late and having to write the notes because you want to make sure that when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to do these notes that you didn't finish. It's about being the person who's last in line and not getting any money because you want to be able to prove yourself and saying, I'm, I may be an intern, but I'm going to show them why, why I am who I am. And I've already taken a pay cut because my education skill level are actually way beyond this, but I wanted to prove that I can deal with this. I'm not some posh kid that says that just because I have education that I deserve everything. I need you to show that I deserve it. And so this is what happened with the pirates. You know, I, I was already overqualified and the pirates even said I was well overqualified for my first job, even as a minor league athletic trainer, because I was already a physical therapist. I was already an athletic trainer. I already was a strength coach and I was already a manual therapist. And I was working in a clinic in New York city. And I said, but the only way for me to be able to get into sports and the foot in the door is to start from the bottom because I will never get respected otherwise. And so that's what I believe is necessary. Take the steps, don't skip it, learn from your mistakes and grow accordingly. And if you're worried that you're not going to be successful, guess what? The research says that 85% of things that we worry about actually don't occur. And all those 15% that we actually does occur, it's not as bad as it is. And it becomes mainly a growing point in life. So really the bad things that happen in life are maybe 0.1% in reality of things. So that's the second step. And the third step is manifestation. I think sometimes we push so much because, hey, we were clear. Hey, we worked hard. We studied. We went to university. We did everything we did. Now I deserve it. I deserve to get this. And the moment you say that, the universe says, no, you don't. Because you think that your ego is making you prove that you're supposed to. But in reality, it's your humility and the service that you give to others that will then allow you to let the universe listen and say, hey, you know what? It's now the time that you deserve it. And I think most of the younger generation who live in this immediate recognition world, this 
this world of where we want that instant gratification have a hard time pausing and allowing the universe to work for them. And so they show ego, ego all the time without having to prove the work that they've done. And so it's important for me to tell people that say, hey, look, just do you, be you, and then trust me. The universe will speak up for you. You know, uh, Paulo Coelho and the alchemist will say, you know, you, you know, the universe will always transpire to do what you want. And I love that book. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things that popped up in my head on the on the second stage, I guess, that you that you talk about some of the stuff where you're just going to have to earn, you know, work to 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 gain the knowledge and everything else. Where's that drive come from? How can you help someone get more mentally resilient or focused on their goals? Yeah, so you tapped into the right word, resilience. Resilience is, is I think, the key to really success uh, as it relates particularly to the, the later stages because resilience is going to be needed when you've already done the work and you're still not getting that gig. You're still not able to, to be seen by your dream employers, so to speak. And so it's resilience that helps you continue on with the path despite the limiting beliefs and the doubts that's creeping in your head that you're not worthy. That comes, I think, for me, and I, you know, for me, from the Filipino culture. The Philippines was always the because of where we were situated as a country. It was the it was the most strategic place for every major powerhouse in the world at any given period of time in the history of man to occupy. And you know, Spain did that for three hundred thirty-three years because it was a great gateway to Asia, and the galleon trade was based out of there. And I did a whole segment about the galleon trade in one of my talks because it was so fascinating to me, the relationship between Spain, Mexico, and the Philippines, and then Cuba along the way. And it allowed me to just have a better understanding as I researched this even more of how we all want a better life. And in the Philippines, there's so many Filipinos, there's 100 million Filipinos plus in the Philippines and 23 million in Manila alone. How do we make ourselves different from each other? But also, how do we make sure that people in our family are taken care of? And so that resilience comes from the fact that, you know, we, we were a culture of not only constantly occupied, but also trying to understand who we are on a regular basis. Because we, we were occupied so much that, like, are we Spanish? Are we Asian? Are we English? Because the, the English came in as well. Are we... Dutch are we you know where are we and so I think it's very reflective of the food you know Filipino food is one of the first ever true fusion food because of the mixture of things because there's things coming from Malay and the Malay and the Polynesian side too there's so many mixtures of things and I think that constant struggle for identity even to this day is what makes us resilient and the number of typhoons and natural disasters that hit us because of our strategic point in the world with the Pacific Ocean right next to us we're the first barrier we're pretty much the sandbar for the rest of Asia. So if we get hit and then everyone else is like, Thailand is better and Singapore is better, but we get hit already. And um, and that comes from the fact that every year once we, once we get hit by these typhoons, yes, there's suffering and yes, there's challenge, but Filipinas are one of the only culture where no matter how devastating life is, we always manage to find a smile in our face and find the fun in things. You'll see these videos of these guys during a, a massive flood that happened in the past typhoon in the beginning of the year uh, or at the end of last year where they found a couch and they got a couple of oars and they were swimming around in this couch. They used this couch as a life raft, and, but they were drinking beers. 
some of that resonates with me because my, my time in Fiji, we obviously had, we had a cyclone season as well. And in my last year, just a few months before I finished, we had um, Cyclone Winston. It was, a, it was the biggest cyclone to hit the Southern Hemisphere and it was still the second biggest in recorded history. And a third of the villages were, were wiped out and a third of the boys that I was coaching there, their houses were destroyed. And as an Englishman, when you know I'm sitting here in Southwest London, if we have an electricity blackout for about thirty seconds, the entire you know Southwest London are, are up in arms about how something might have gone wrong for a, a couple of seconds. But in Fiji, I was just amazed at when I saw those boys um, a few days later. They were all upbeat and happy and smiling, and they were like, "Well, you know, if we've got to live at our cousins for a few months before we can save enough money to start rebuilding again, then that's okay. That's cool." And th- their ability to live in the present is something that we, you know, we struggle with in first world mm. because often, you know, the negatives were that they, if they don't know what's, you know, something might not be there tomorrow. So make the most of it today. That's, that's great as far as being very, very um, grateful for what you have in the present. It's not so good if there's a, f- a free bar perhaps, or, uh, or there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a, you know, you're, you're down, you're down in a hotel for, for, brunch and uh, a lot of food can can go sideways pretty quickly and there's not a lot of people with that uh, that have too many pensions in Fiji either mm. but that ability to stay in the, in the present was something that I thought was so valuable in what they did in life and in and in sport they didn't hang on too hard to to loss and they played the game in the present they weren't too worried about you know the future so they have a high risk high paced game mm. and because they enjoyed it and I, I often thought that that was one of the strengths and that's what gave them this mindfulness without them knowing it, that the whole nation had this mindfulness. Would you say then that's also a reason that you had that coming from the Philippines for exactly the same reasons? I, I, I think so. I mean, you, you talk mindfulness in the Philippines and people will think you're, you're a weird guy that's trying to start a cult. But when in fact it's something that we already have, it's... Uh, I, I'm trying to figure there was... Um, the word is... Uh, I think the word is muni, muni, muni. It's the constant thought, way of thinking or thought. So my friend actually about eight years ago or maybe nine years ago now started a company or a blog called or in a community called uh, called muni. And muni literally means being mindful. And, and that's not just mindfulness from an aspect of the body and taking care of ourselves, but her goal was more about being mindful about the trash and in the environment, she was, you know, she was big in the environment. So she started a blog about how to be mindful with, with waste, with electricity, with all that stuff and with how to act, not necessarily from a health and wellness perspective. And at the time, I didn't really understand what she meant by that, because like from what my understanding with mindfulness is about this more psychological and more health wise. And she did it from that aspect of environmental. But then it's a natural trait we already have in the islands of where we're more mindful of when we go into, let's say, a, a party that we don't know who the the host is of the party. We have tact. We kind of figure out first, like we, we weave our way down and say, okay, who's the host of the room and how do we determine it? So then they can know who we are so we're not a stranger. Or we'll ask somebody, hey, can you introduce us to the host of the room? Because this is not, we just got here, we're a guest. And funny enough, that same thought process is also something called nunchi in Korean, uh, the power of nunchi. There's a book called The Power of Nunchi where it's about how to handle a room. But then if you think about it, but isn't that mindfulness too? It's like as you walk into the room, how do you handle a room? Are you Do you want to be the big jokester and make a scene? Or 
is it not that kind of place? It's about having tact. It's about understanding what the room is like, what the temperature is like, and then being that person at that temperature. Do you think you're good at doing that? Do you think you can, you can feel the room's temperature when you go in somewhere? Yes, I, I think that's something I'm very gifted with, which I think for some of my friends say that, uh, some of my friends say I'm a slow roast, meaning that in order for me and people to really get along, you, you have to get me to get to know me more. Like we have to like spend time a couple of days. Like I look immediately like a guy that's very trustable that you want to get to know, but for you to really know who I am, we need a couple of dates or coffee time, hanging out with some coffee or zoom calls just to get to know each other. And, and there's not, there's no malice. There's no, there's no hidden agenda. It's just me just wanting to get to know who you are. And I'm a slow roast in that sense, because then you don't ever realize the stories that this body and this mind is made up and the spirit is made up of so much. I've done so much in my life that I don't tell everything to everyone right away. Yet meantime, I have some friends that say, no, dude, you walk into the room and everyone knows you're the fun guy. <laughs> so I'm like, but I'm not always that because I have to figure out what the temperature is like. If it's a fun situation, I'm yes, I'm the fun guy. But really, ironically, I think if the room is already so like wild and crazy, I'm the quiet guy that comes in and grounds people. Because they're so high, okay, how can I bring them down? But if the room is like, then I'm the guy's like, all right, where's the drinks? What's going on, you know? Because I, I'm guess, I guess I'm the balancer. I, I like to be the person that either brings you down or lifts you up, depending on, or up. I would rather say up-regulates you or down-regulates you, because they don't say up or down. So, From an individual point of view, we, I mean, it's balance is something we all seek, right? And And... If I was to then put this into um, a team environment, have you ever gone into before a game or in the build-up to a game, have you ever sensed that something's not quite right and then there's an opportunity then for you or for you to tell the coaches that there's a, a way to try to get that balance back? Yeah, definitely something we've done, uh, especially as it relates to breath. So depending on the mood, depending on how we feel about the team we're competing with, then I decide what kind of breath we're going to do. Are we doing grounding breath to let you know it's, it's why you feel so anxious and stuff? How can we grind you back to be in this present moment? We do uh, a fast breath to kind of, if you're sluggish, you're tired, you feel like you can't compete. Okay, let's do some fast activation breath to get you upregulated. Or how about we just, we just like take a moment to get you calm. Like not even grounded where you're grounded and ready, but really rested, like on the flip side you know, some breath work that allows you to be like breath work and meditation that allows you just like, okay, I'm exhausted now. I just need to like, I'm so upregulated and high from all the input that I need to just calm down. So it really depends. And I've been able to use breath because if I, like I said, if I use the word meditation, it sometimes doesn't come off well to many people. But if I say breath and everyone knows, and I always preface this by saying, breath is the first thing you, you are gifted with when you're first born into this world. And breath is the last thing that, the universe takes from you before you leave this world it's a good way to put it as well because i'm sure you i'm sure you've seen sometimes you know the defenses come up when you start talking about mindfulness or meditation in this in elite sport sometimes and the reframing it like that will get by and then i guess once they understand the value of it then then it's then you've got some collective ownership around it would you also bring that into even the smaller skills so i'm thinking of something like a, a three point uh, sorry a, um, a free throw to be able to you know to calm someone down do they have individual then stuff that they'll do in those moments yeah it, it's reminding them to breathe it's like i, I scream from the back and be like <laughs> don't forget to breathe because they'll know it too because if they rush it 
they missed a free throw. They sit down and I'd be like, you forgot to breathe. And he goes, yeah, I know. That's why I rushed it. I didn't go in. Because by finding yourself present, you're committed and seeing absolute clarity that that ball goes, that goes in. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. But then you're okay with it. But if you rush that situation, you force yourself, oh, I got to get this free throw. Because you ask yourself, why are you rushing? Like, you have the ball. You're given time. You're not staying there for two minutes. But you have five. You have ten. Take it. Use it to rest. Use it to catch it. Literally catch your breath. <laughs> So, and you think the team have got? You think you've got full buy-in now by everybody, and they can see the value. And do they own it? Do they own it now? For some of the guys, I mean, there's some guys that are new to our team, so they haven't seen this from a team perspective, but rather individually, if they see them acting, and these are some players who are successful, and they've dedicated their life now to add this tool to their arsenal, then you'll get some of the other players going like, "Oh, what did he do? I want to learn that too." So, but we don't do it as a team group situation anymore we did i did it for the past two years this year we're, we're just doing individual if like anyone needs something and say hey have you thought about pausing real quick and, and just taking a breath or have you thought about maybe like upregulating by doing some quick breaths just to kind of wake you up and so if you had a if we have a coach that's listening in on this pod and thinking do you know what I, I, this is something that i really like to to bring into my into my team what advice would you give them to to start the ball rolling it's first try to understand the importance of breath and you can do the research. I mean, it's out there from a plain physiological standpoint, the more oxygen we have in our brain, the clearer we are to think mm. and it's simple. So start with that. Don't go, you don't have to go well into the understanding of the spirituality component of things. And even the science behind mindfulness, just, just, just start with breathing because if you focus on breathing, you already are finding yourself being more mindful. You already are going to get into a state of flow, which then you might possibly get into meditation. So just begin with breathing. And so with all the athletes I work with, whether it's in basketball, whether it's in baseball, and sometimes some from the English Premier League soccer players that I, I've been blessed to, to just hang out with and, and spend time with, I just say, hey, how do you breathe? And they're like, what do you mean? It's like, I breathe fine. I was like, do you really? And they're like, okay. So I just observe. And I, it doesn't have to be something crazy. And I just say, hey, you raise your shoulders up when you breathe. When you're tired, you do this. You know, that makes you more tired, just physiologically and physically. And they're like, you're right. What, 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 if, we, what if we just get our diaphragm, just work and just breathe? And I'm not by any means a breathing guru. It's, I'm not Wim Hof. I just think that it's a tool to be able for you to be able to slowly tap into yourself and then be able to stack other tools, then to start improving. One question that I, I would love to, to know is from the 12-year-old E that was getting his black belt in Taekwondo to the E that I'm chatting to now and the journey that you've had from, from that dojo to here, working with some of the best athletes on the planet in one of the biggest sporting organizations on the planet. Is there something that, you know, that a constant thread all the way through that I'm going, yeah, this is this is what I think is is an absolutely golden signal that I've always had in my life and I'm always going to continue to have to be as good as I possibly can be. Yeah, it's it begins with what you probably noticed from the beginning. It's my curiosity. Mm. It's my appreciation of beauty and excellence. It's it's being able to use this curiosity then to gain wisdom, which perspective wisdom is my second greatest character strength, which then lets me be grateful, and which is my third greatest character strength. So it all kind of weirdly enough, when I took this test, the questionnaire, and I was like, my God, this is me. Like, it's no doubt that this is exactly who I am. I was like, first I was like, I should be, gratitude is my number one. Yeah, but I think it's not until I see 
the beauty in people than or of the space that I'm in that I'm like, ah, I'm so thankful because I'm so blessed to have this opportunity just to be here and just here with you. And then I pause because of it. And it's that, that curiosity to see not just beyond what I'm seeing, but seeing where I am now and enjoying this exact moment that allows me then to continue to move forward and allow for the universe to help me manifest some of the greatest gifts I've ever received in life. Well, Erwin, uh, Benedict Valencia, this has been brilliant. Like, I know how busy you are and you know, you, to find time um, for me has, has been an absolute pleasure. You've, you're this well of wisdom that I could talk to you about so many different things and you could go so deep <laughs> on. Um, there are going to be, once we put the, the notes out to this show, there are so many um, little nuggets of wisdom and places that people can go to get further learning that we'll, we'll make sure are put in all of those notes. But thank you so much for, for being here today. Absolutely, my brother. It's my pleasure, always. Anything for you. I hope without seeing him or meeting him, you got a feeling for who and how he is. Positive and prepared, highly competent and always wanting to know more. Now, I've been lucky enough to see him with some of his athletes and he has a calmness about him that makes them want to engage and makes them want to be open. As you also heard, he is so curious and I think it's a brilliant trait for all of us to remember. But it isn't a baseless curiosity. He has the foundations with his qualifications and his learning and experience. Put curiosity on top of all of that and you get someone that will find new ways to help you and those around you become their best them consistently. It's one of the things for me that marks out the best from the good. The textbooks, the letters after your name, they only really get you into a two-dimensional performance. It doesn't animate what you do. That comes from personalising what you know to fit what you see. As Erwin said, you've got to take the steps. Don't skip them. Get your foundations. Be prepared and ready for the opportunities ahead. But also put your mark on it. And don't worry if no one else is doing it that way or you thought of a particular solution that no one else has done. That's the path for pushing boundaries and achieving more. Others around you are going to see that too. It does get recognised. It also keeps you true to you. Owen has a brilliant website, simply named erwinvalencia.com, where you can find out more about him and what he does and where you can see and hear him more too. He pops up on lots of different media platforms, but one that's pretty interesting at the moment and is new is on Clubhouse, where he is hosting Gratitude Gang. For this episode, there is a ton of links to stuff we talked about or simply referred to. Check out the show notes on the episode webpage that can be found at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcasts. It's always been a aim to have these conversations without any limits. Wherever that might be, if I think you guys will benefit from and enjoy our discussions, then I'm going to give you that. We won't just be staying in the UK for these episodes some guests will have great insight into performance and culture but they won't be involved directly in sport all aspects of high performance are sought and discussed here please press that subscribe button on the usual platforms including apple podcasts spotify TuneIn, amazon music and google podcasts finally and you probably hear this at the end of nearly every podcast but yep it really does make a big difference to get us noticed and help more people find us if you head to Apple to leave a review about the podcast. 
Thank you for all the personal messages you've already sent to me as well on social media. You can find me on Instagram at BenRyan7s and on Twitter at BenjaminRyan. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. <laughs>